Welcome to Conscious Collaboration, the premier show for authentic discussions with growth-oriented leaders. Hello and welcome to Conscious Collaboration Podcast, the podcast about all things collaboration, because we do spend a lot of time in collaboration. In fact, the time we actually spend working together in joint problem-solving or decision-making activities has more than doubled in the past 20 years. And the rewards for collaboration are significant, but so is the effort to get there. I'm your host, Josh Bayer. And we talk to leaders and practitioners in the field to discuss different aspects of collaboration and what we can do individually and as teams and organizations to consciously support collaboration. And today's angle is self-organization. And I am very pleased to welcome Carlo, who is an expert in the field. Welcome, Carlo Giardinetti. Hi. Thanks, Josh. And hello, everybody. Happy to be here. Okay, great. So collaboration requires people to organize themselves. It's as straightforward as that. And that effort to organize oneself can be self-directed or it can be prescribed, which really touches all kinds of matters of self-empowerment or power or authority and hierarchy. And I really want to say more about Carlo, who is a great expert in the field. So you've actually started out as a professional soccer player, then went into the hospitality industry, but now I understand, you know, you're really in the education management space. You have introduced holacracy as one example of a self-organizing framework, really, methodology at the Business School of Lausanne, and you're now starting a new program on collaborative leadership in Lugano at the University, the Franklin University. So this is just really a great opportunity to hear more from what you have learned along the way. So thanks again for being our guest. Thank you. First off, Carlo, you know, we always run our definition by our guests and see what they think about that. Because when I say we, I mean, El Sivi and and myself, we're co-running this podcast, which is basically when we think about what is conscious collaboration, we have come as consultants and coaches to see that collaboration isn't really something that we obtain or attain and then we have a set it and forget it kind of place. It's an ongoing, conscious, committed practice that can be very personal where personal growth and professional growth are very intertwined, but it really requires a commitment. It's not a one-time thing to make collaboration happen. How does that resonate with your experience? Very, very much, uh, Yash. I think I always find amazing how most people uh, have some sort of uh, assumption that we were kind of natural-born collaborators. And, you know, collaboration, of course, is a human thing. And, and when you... And they underestimate, actually, how much it takes in terms of, as you said, personal change, personal development, and professional development to get collaboration right instead of most example of collaboration that we end up experiencing in our organization. So I completely agree that collaboration and becoming good at collaboration is an ongoing process. It's an act, as I call it, is an act of functional generosity. That's how I call it. Okay. What do you, what do you mean by that, functional generosity? 
<laughs> well, I, I mean that to become good in collaboration, it really starts with the act of generosity. And when I mean generosity, I really mean the act of understanding that you need to open up, you need to give something to the group, you need to be able to get. And that is a professional sort of generosity that we are not necessarily very used to. And when I call it functional, is because very soon you actually discover that that is this is not a really a sentimental or an emotional act of generosity. It pays back amazingly when you learn that trick. That it starts with yourself very much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me. I had a guest uh, a few shows back who used the word receptivity a lot. That part of what makes us collaborators is the fact that we have a f good sense of our own ideas and we have confidence in our own ideas, but we're also receptive to what others have to bring to the party and that in a way is is that the kind of generosity that that you hint towards the openness yes absolutely that openness that openness is is an act of generosity in my opinion because we give it for granted we all think we are that open but actually it's a, an initial effort to truly appreciate other people's input ideas even when they are not necessarily aligned with ours, and to the ability to question those ideas, to work around those ideas, it takes an effort that you have normally, it, it comes at a high cost, and that cost uh, for yourself, uh, you need to be trained to overcome that cost. And at the beginning, that's why I call it in a way an act of generosity. You have to make that investment at the beginning to work on that cost. Hmm. What does the cost look like in your experience? What I notice, obviously, people like their ideas. We know from behavioral science that there's psychological ownership of ideas. So being open, being generous towards others' ideas means kind of stepping back from that. Is that the cost you're referring to or what, what specifically do you mean? That's absolutely one cost. There's another cost that has to do with not having an attitude of being politically correct. So you can hear an idea from somebody else. And we have a natural, uh, many of us have a natural tendency to please others. And we believe that disagreement means displeasing others in a way <laughs> of making them feel uncomfortable. And we start feeling uncomfortable ourselves. In collaboration, there is this great concept that came out from several researchers that is the psychological safety. And psychological safety is when really we start feeling the cost of speaking up in a group setting, criticize others' idea in a constructive way, but at the same time, you know, trying to, for the good of the organization, work with other people's ideas. Instead of using the simplification of it's my idea or your idea, it's either one way or another. Welcome those ideas, work around them. It's not about the ownership. It's about how can we speak around everybody's idea, improve them and perfect them, that comes at a cost, a social cost. You know, nobody likes to be intrusive, nobody likes to be, to look ignorant or to look silly when they make a comment and then somebody maybe contradict you. And that becomes, that, that's what the cost that we often incur. Yeah. Yeah, because I assume if if we don't put these things on the table, these things being disagreements we might have or concerns we might have or things that 
we find enticing, but we might be vulnerable or reluctant to put it out there because we thought it might be ridiculous. But all of that in a way means we're just having less to communicate about. It's kind of harder to self-organize, to kind of come to some agreement about what is it that we're trying to accomplish here if we're withholding that kind of input. I agree. And the exercise of being able to criticize others in a functional way is very useful to learn how to welcome criticism from others as well. Eventually, if we learn to do it in a functional way, we learn to detach the emotional part of giving and receiving a, a disagreement in a way. We transform it more in a functional, and we learn a lot about the importance of that. Teams, there's several research nowadays that tell us that teams that are able to do that, like you say, put things on the table, discuss, have an agreement, have clarity, clarity on uh, roles, clarity on accountability, clarity on dependability, clarity on the meaning of our work, on the impact we are going for, a number of clarities, work on those clarities together, are the teams that outperform any other team. Yeah. And when I'm hearing you correctly, yes, we can do certain things structurally or in the work environment to provide that kind of clarity. But at the end of the day, there's also a very personal component where people take the risk and speak up about what matters to them or what their vision is. And so it's really not just an operational or process issue to, to organize that kind of work. I completely agree. And I would not put them in a hierarchy, one more important to another. They are really, really as important, both. Because we found out that actually having structured scripts to initiate more collaboration in teams, it's very helpful, for instance. So when we know that we are going to go through certain rounds of conversation to get to certain point of agreement or disagreement, having that structure is very helpful because make everybody feel safer because they know that the conversation is going through some, you know, relatively neutral and well-balanced structure and flow. And, and people tend to join and embrace that much more than if we go in a way free flow where, you know, the more extrovert or the more charismatic might take over in, in that uh, dance uh, in the room, right? Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that and, and like how to find that sweet spot. Because as I said initially, I really wanted to invite you to think and help our listeners reflect on, you know, what self-organization might look like and how to make it happen. And what can happen, and I've seen it happen, is that if you put any kind of structure away, then it can create a void that makes it less safe. And so that's where you, you're using the word script. So it's not just about saying, oh, we're self-organizing, like this is a total free fall, it's one blank slate, because it's more complicated than that. There has to be freedom and there has to be structure. So there, to say more about that sweet spot. Yes. I mean, uh, you use the keyword. We worked a lot again with some of my colleagues on on learning that thesis and antithesis with freedom and not freedom. And what we think is really important is the synthesis of the two, that is structure freedom. And there's a lot of, again, research that tell us that people are really performing very well 
if within a certain structure and framework where they can express their freedom. But the freedom really find the best expression within a structure and not without a structure. And that's interesting because, in fact, if you look at any attempt for self-organization, and you mentioned holacracy, which I have used and experimented, studied three years at Business School of Lausanne, it is the opposite of uh, armed structure. I mean, holacracy has a constitution, has a book of rules by which everybody is demanded to comply in many ways. And every meeting is highly structured, and most procedures are highly structured. So the moment you, let's say, when you go for self-organization and, and you step away from hierarchy of people, you start uh, a different type of hierarchy. It's a hierarchy of work. So it's less people somehow dominating or, or, or managing other people. It's more designing a hierarchy of work where we understand what piece of work need to step in at what time and we design and we architect that. Most self-organization structure look like that, uh, very structured <laughs> and not the opposite. Mm -hmm. Let's say... I'm a team leader and I'm used to, you know, a, a more conventional way in which organizations are functioning and projects are managed and organized. But I'm somehow intrigued by this idea that, you know, there is this way where there's a synthesis between freedom and structure and it's kind of empowering my team members and I want this, but where do I start? Like, what's a hierarchy of work? I find out of all the research done, uh, the, the work that Google has done uh, recently, the project Aristotle, that is so-called, where they really have identified these five variables that are dominating any other variable that, that makes for a successful team, it's a good start. It's about, okay, if you want to have a, a good team to work well together, If you start working on these five uh, dimensions, they, that's the best to start. And, and these five dimensions are things like, for instance, uh, dependability and accountability. So a self-organized team, they are extremely clear on who's going to do what. That is, you know, and, and they decide that together. And that's the difference, let's say, from a typical hierarchical way of doing it. But they decided by highlighting their strengths, highlighting their passion, their functionalities, and, and so on. And then they are very clear on who's expected to do what. Now, what they are very good at is they don't expect that expectation to last forever. They're very open to know and understand that roles might evolve over time in a collaborative team. So what they expect is if you don't think you should be accountable for something anymore, you bring that to the table and we discuss that and something might change because over the, you know, after week three of the project, we realize that there are other pieces of work that somebody else has to pick. And we, they are able to talk about that very openly, again, through some good process, by believing that that clarity is what is needed. They are not looking for stability. They are looking for clarity. And even if things change, as long as we're clear about that change, we can work on that. 
That is a great piece. Now, I think the interesting question is, how do you make that happen? How do you have the people functioning well with that? Where do they find the courage, for instance, to come back after two weeks and say, guys, I know I was responsible for this, but what I discovered is I can't do it. And I can't do it because A, B, and C. <laughs> mm. Yeah, let me let me come back to that question. For those who are not familiar with Project Aristotle, thanks for mentioning it. And what's interesting is that out of that research, what they really found among those five factors is, uh, you know, such as psychological safety, they actually found was the most important indicator for how well-performing a team will be, even more so than structure and clarity, because unless there is psychological safety, the feedback loops, the learning loops are broken. A team cannot organize or a team can self-organize. A team cannot, at least not effectively, just learn and improve if those pieces of information are not being offered up by team members, which is really why they made it the number one role. So something fantastic to check out for those who are interested. But yes, like how do you make it happen for a person? Because when I remember when we spoke uh, in preparation of today's call, you shared your experience that when you introduced holacracy, for instance, or when you saw it introduced, that ultimately there is a pretty large group of people who have a negative attitude towards that kind of approach. And that group doesn't necessarily get smaller because you push harder. So say say a little bit more about it. How do people react to the offer of self-organization? That has been uh, quite a painful reflection with hindsight. When, when after we finished that experiment, we looked back and we were trying to understand a little bit more of how people had behaved and had reacted, like you say, to this new way of working. And what we discovered is that, yes, we had what I have eventually almost identified as up to an initial sort of 30% of our people were negative to the idea of starting holacracy. And, and then there was around 50% that were could not really say whether they were positive or negative. And then there were a, a kind of a 20% super enthusiast, uh, couldn't wait to be, as they used to say, we used to say, liberated uh, and, and fly with self-organization. But the 30% that was negative, what we were sure <laughs> was that we could have by somehow by role modeling, somehow by becoming better and better with self-organization, we would have been able to simply show how cool this is for all of us and uh, all the benefits that become available for everybody. And so we went really hardcore in that way, try to create examples of self-managing leaders, if you wish. And as a result, what was interesting to study afterward is that actually the more we were showing the benefits and how good uh, it's possible to become, the more we were alienating that 30%. And actually, even the, the, out of the 50 neutral people, 50%, a lot of people started to lean toward being becoming negative. And I think uh, when we were leaving this, all we could do is react in a very defensive way, like, okay, that means these people are not made for self-organization. They're free to go. And, you know, one is free to go, two is free to go, three is free to go, four is free to go, free to go. The organizations start going under pressure. And we learned later on 
that uh, that attitude of just showing more and pushing more for somebody who doesn't see self-management as a liberation at all, that's a funny assumption that I often hear, that self-management purpose is to liberate people. A lot of people don't see that as a liberation at all. It became their worst nightmare. And we know that more and more from research. We, we call this the socialized mindset. Well, as far as we know nowadays, around 60% of the workforce is likely to be in a socialized mindset. And what I learned today is that there's actually nothing wrong with that. There's a place for all of us in, in organization, but through pushing too hard uh, for somebody who is in a socialized mindset to accept and embrace self-management is a mistake that I can say today I have done and we have done as an organization. And if I would do it again, I would certainly not go that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because ironically, you know, we, we spent the beginning part of this conversation really talking about psychological safety. And there is a risk that the message is, hey, this is great, you better get it, and then you get on board or else you're just, you know, you don't have a place here, which I would argue doesn't really create a lot of psychological safety. <laughs> you're completely right. I think the difference there is the places where I've seen psychological safety really strive and the people where I, and the team where I saw that working were people who have been able more and more to make those practices functional. And, and this is something that actually holacracy also as a system try to support people to, to do is the separation from, you know, whatever are your emotion and what is the work to be done. And this is much easier said than done. But uh, it's true that people eventually in teams that are able to do this better and better are those that somehow switch the focus on the functional aspect. So the piece of work that we need to get done to make sure that we can collaborate well together. And then those disagreements, those constructive comments, those they come and are received in a, in a very, I don't say neutral, because neutral can sound very dry. We still, you know, we're still human beings. We don't want a workplace that is just neutral. But you actually allocate the focus into the functional aspect of the things that we need to do, and you are more and more capable of doing so. And this doesn't have to be a prerequisite of a non-socialized mindset. Even somebody who has a socialized mindset can actually work in a very functional way in a team. And I think this has been also an interesting way to look at it as if self-management practices, they have to be something only for what we call the self-authoring mind or somebody who has a very high developmental stage. In fact, in a collaborative environment, you can make self-managing practices accessible and available to everybody. What is much more difficult is you want to make your whole organization self-managed or you want to push all your people 
to be fully self-managing, embrace your the full responsibilities, and then then that's a huge demand. But injecting or starting some great self-managing practices in the way teams collaborate, that is something that it's much more accessible for everybody. And I'm curious about those practices, but just as a as a sidebar for those who aren't familiar, self transforming or self-authoring and, and socialized mind. Those are terms that actually go back to uh, Keegan and Leahy's work on adult development theory. Regular listeners know we, we're we big fans of it. And I'll, I'll make sure there's some links in the show notes for those who want to understand the background better because it really indicates a rising level of socio-emotional maturity and an, and, and an ability to really act from an inner seat of judgment versus values that um, we were just that were passed down to us values and ambitions by our you know parents and communities and so forth that that's really one key element and the misunderstanding perhaps that can occur is that self-organizing self-managing kind of environments cannot happen with socialized minds there are possibilities and it requires those practices so Carlo, like, what are some examples of practices that people can begin with, you know, short of transforming the entire organization to like a fully fledged self-organizing or holocratic model? But like, where can this start? It's a good question. Where can they start? I think I, I learned much more in the past years what not to do, which is a good start. <laughs> and and I think that's what I was trying to explain earlier, a number of things that I would not do, which is this idea of demanding or thinking that self-management is a transformation that has to happen and, and you have to put people somehow against the wall and say, now, you know, we need to become more flexible, more agile, more uh, responsive, and therefore you need to, you know, put yourself together and, and become good at self-managing. That is not a fair demand uh, to anybody. But uh, instead, to work collaboratively much more, once we understand that different people react differently to things... I think we can work toward what I call more of the hybrid type of organization, hybrid type of structuring. So if you have a member of a team that clearly responds better to uh, being supported or being uh, somehow led uh, or being guided because needs, it's in a stage where uh, needs those reconfirmation all the time or, or touch point all the time, the best piece of work that you can do is not trying to transform that person, but to provide those touch points and make them available. But at the same time, if in your team, you still have, you have somebody else who is clearly sees um, touch point, uh, let's say, if you use this to use the same term, as bottlenecks to uh, his or her autonomy or to um, somehow the creativity or the potential innovation, well, it's up to you as a leader to make that space available. And I think uh, the more we become good at designing teams, designing organizations that respect 
these differences and provide the support or the structure accordingly. And I think the more we are able to function well, and I think the difference, I want to close with that in in this uh, (laughs) moment of reasoning, the key with that is that all of this should not be an expectation only towards the leaders to architect all this. I think if leaders learn more and more to, like you said at the beginning, invite everybody to put the things on the table and work with that, and it's not just the expectation that the the leader will solve all of that, but the leader show also some vulnerability and say, wow, that's a lot we need to process to become functional altogether. Let's get it done. So it's also an attitude of openness from the leaders. That attitude can go miles away. I I wouldn't get stuck at one tool or another tool, certainly not in this conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate that because it's, you know, of the many ways in which a leader needs to model the way and walk the talk. You know, there's accountability and there's providing that clarity, but also having the comfort with this self-organization and with the kind of exchange of what people's inner experience is or what they need from one another and creating safe spaces to do that. That role modeling is really pivotal. It's just another aspect in which, uh, you know, the hybrid solution, as you called it, where, where a leader can really help pull up an entire team or or whoever that leader is. It doesn't even need to be the formal leader, but where the role modeling of some folks can really shift the overall baseline for all the collaborators. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of our research told us as well that, you see, hierarchy is still extremely good at a, a number of things. For instance, in providing strategic direction or a sense of safety and comfort in an organization, it's extremely important. But what hierarchy, uh, the limits of hierarchy or a hierarchical way of structuring things, let's say, is uh, when you need innovation, when there is a need of autonomy and responsiveness in an organization. More often than not, in that case, hierarchy gets in the way. And I think the big question that we were trying to tackle is, you know, organizations don't want one or the other. Actually, organizations nowadays, they want strategic uh, coordination and sense of safety, but they also want innovation, responsiveness, agility, autonomy. So how do you get both of them? And that's where we started to say, well, if hierarchy clearly proved to be good at some, but not at the rest, and self-management clearly seems to be good at innovation and creativity, but less good in creating a sense of safety and in providing a, a coherent a strategic coordination, the answer is becomes almost obvious is that you need both in an organization. You need the ability to structure hierarchically and you need the ability to self, uh, to structure in a self-managing, self-organizing way. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that because I definitely have come across a more standard or conventional work cultures where there's nearly an equating of self-organizing as some kind of anarchy and it's not an either or. You know, there's a quote I really appreciate by the physicist Niels Bohr, who said, a great truth is a statement whose opposite is also a great truth. And from my experience in the field, both in coaching as well as working with teams, is that the most productive, fertile 
places are the ones where it is a both end, where it's not like one side of a spectrum or the other side, but it's really how do you find that in between where there are coexisting truths and how do you manage that as they keep changing and that all of that might sound a little highbrow, but that's exactly where the music is because we're really not living in a world with easy answers. Well, thank you for bringing these inspirations to, to our minds. I will add a link to your latest project on collaborative leadership for those who are interested to learn more and how to embrace those ideas and bring it to your own leadership and to possibly your teams or your organizations. I highly recommend it. And this is it for today. So thanks again, Carla, for joining. Thank you for the time. Thank you for this great opportunity to reflect on these big questions together. Those are big questions. I know, I'm sure there, there could be more, but here we are. And for now, all the best and until the next time.